A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to Season 5 of the group chat. I'm news correspondent here at Virgin Media Television, Richard Chambers, joined by fellow news correspondent, Sarah King. Hello, Happy New Year. Happy New Year indeed. Although it's past that, that yeah. yeah. We'll edit that out, I'm sure, at some point. And political <laughs> correspondent Gavin Riley is also and here. And Happy Patrick's Day and Easter and <laughs> Happy Valentine's Christmas. Day and all that. Season well, five. Yeah. We are actually, I, must, I, I said I'd mention this at the start of the show. We have what? been given a new accolade. Oh, yes. We were, we so were, you, you know about this accolade. We don't know anything about this. So you're there. We are listed on RTE.ie as one of the top 10 Streaming and television items to watch today, Wednesday, really? the 10th of January. Really? There we are. Thank you very much, RTE. Thanks, RTE. There's more than, <laughs> Hope you sort out your finances. There was more than 10. What else is Mo- there? Most of them was like murder mysteries and stuff like that. So we're in fine company now. Like daytime tally murder mysteries. I think so, yeah. I will take it. For anyway. Anyway. to stream Mr. Bates versus the Post Office on the Virgin Media Player. Very good and making a lot of ra- waves across the water. Well worth watching. We might, we might come back to the issue of that actually next week because it is mm. actually fascinating. Actually, story. and I want to, when we get to the end of the program, I want to ask you what you're watching lately because if you watched that Fool Me Once thing on Netflix. No. Never mind, we won't get Part to four. it. Part four, we won't get <laughs> Never mind, okay. Uh, how was your break? Yeah, lovely. Really, really nice, actually. Totally enjoyed the break. Uh, probably needed it more than I realised. Uh, really enjoyed the rest. Lots of beach walks. Just lots of chilling out. And she's like everyone else, I'm on a health buzz now for the next couple of weeks. So I'm sure it'll be over Good by... For you. I'm sure it'll be over by February. Yeah. I saw a lot of soft play centres. Uh, yes. Lovely. No, it was great. It was a nice to get a good long stretch where... Work wasn't getting in the way of seeing the family and stuff, so it was great. Yeah, Very rested. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, loads of running. Out in Rush. Out in Rush, I was indeed, yeah. A lot of beach time. Just great. Great old time, I have Love to say. Love a beach walk the... over Christmas, have to say. Yeah, yeah, no, it was lovely. It was it was one, one of my favourite Christmases ever, I'd have was to say. It? As a 34-year-old man, oh. the magic of Christmas still Returns tugs the old heartstrings. The top 35 <laughs> Christmases. Absolutely up there. Um, we will get straight into it, though. And, and Sarah, you've been working on this for the last number of days as well. Yeah. Obviously, it is the start of the year. It is January. Um, the annual trolley cl- crisis is rearing its head once again. Mm. It is. So I was back to work last week and we were spent the first three days that I was back to work actually speaking to families who found themselves sitting in emergency departments, waiting for access to emergency care. Um, we had one family that had a five week old baby, mm. another where there was an 81 year old man, um, another lady who had her mum who was also in her 80s in an emergency department. So loads of examples, lots of people messaging last week saying they were going through that. Um, so we had a chance to speak to them. And actually it's interesting because sometimes patients will message you but don't want to speak on camera. Like I've talked about this very before. Common, it's very yeah. common. And so I thought the fact that people were coming forward last week and actually saying no I want to talk about this I don't like what's the point in staying quiet now you know I don't want this to happen to another family kind of thing that that was quite interesting um, but on foot of that coverage we did hear then from an emergency consultant um, in the west of Ireland Dr Lisa Cunningham who said that you know she found it kind of frustrating to read those headlines particularly being a doctor working on the front line so you know we got straight in touch with her and said listen Lisa we totally understand your perspective and we would love to hear from you on that Yeah so we did uh, we dialed up Lisa we, we got, her on, uh, got her on the show it is an interesting perspective. So we spoke to her a few minutes ago, uh, Dr. Lisa Cunningham, the consultant in emergency medicine at Mayo University Hospital. We started by asking her what life is like currently in her emergency department. So it is, as it has been for the last 12 years that I've worked in emergency medicine, it is just chaotic. It is unsafe at times. It is stressful. It's frustrating. It's exhausting. It is very enjoyable at times when we have very good care that can be given to patients when we have emergencies that we know that we can deal with very, very well. But especially for the last few weeks, it has just been 
absolutely exhausting. What is causing that? I mean, are you seeing a huge amount of patients in at the moment at this time of year, as we always do um, around January? Or what is different this year, do you think? Or is it very much in keeping in line with previous winters that we've seen? It's very much keeping in line with the previous winters that we've seen. But what happens at this time of the year is that certainly more patients present to the emergency department with more illnesses and definitely there's respiratory illnesses that are the most common ones. They are quite unwell with them, but there are other things like the heart attacks and strokes and road traffic collisions that we're seeing coming in as well. So our normal day to day, we certainly see a huge influx of patients that are coming in with respiratory illnesses at this time of the year. We also see a lot of patients that are coming in because for the last week, it was a bank holiday the previous week. We're seeing patients that are coming in maybe with delayed care that they haven't actually accessed care, their primary care centres, which they normally would do. So say, for example, if somebody had a bad tonsillitis that needed antibiotics, they may not have access to the care. They may not have had the ability to access the care or they certainly may not have wanted to access the care over the holidays, but actually have ended up becoming quite unwell. So they are coming in with delayed care to the emergency department and may very well need admission to through the emergency department into the hospital. Lisa, we want to talk to you because I know you've expressed online your frustration with how the media covers uh, this hospital crisis. And I know last night you were speaking online and you were talking about you believe the media contributes in its method of reporting to the stress on patients and staff. The moral injury reiterated for the two weeks of the start of the year for every patient facing staff member that sees the headlines on newspapers, radio and television, etc. You ask, does it achieve anything for actual people uh, who make the decisions? So you do feel incredibly uh, frustrated by the coverage. I suppose just tell us a bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, and, you know, the media could absolutely help us to highlight us as the staff and also the patients to highlight this. But we have done this for literally for the last 12 years that I've worked in it. It is the same formula that's used every single year by the media. And it's great that we can highlight these stories. However, it doesn't just happen at this time of the year. It happens all year round. And I suppose what I'm saying is that what has it achieved? What has that formula actually achieved for us, for the benefit of the patient's care and for the emergency department staff that are working in and working day in, day out in this sort of a frustrating, exhausting atmosphere? So if it was kind of changed up a little bit, um, the moral injury that I've actually referred to there is where emergency department staff or healthcare staff know that we can't actually give the proper care that's needed at the proper time frame, or we feel morally injured that we are having to give IV antibiotics to somebody sitting on a chair. Seeing that over and over again is morally injuring us. It's a worldwide phenomenon for healthcare workers. So this is all contributing to it. We come home from work, we're looking at the news headlines. We go to work, we're listening to the news headlines. We get a chance to go to the coffee shop to get a coffee. It's all over the papers. It is constantly there for us, constantly reminding us about how bad of an atmosphere that we're in, how bad of a crisis that we're in. But it will taper off in the next week or two. But yet we don't feel supported at all to say that we're shouting this from the rooftops all the time. Phil Lee Hay from the INMO is constantly on talking about the trolleys throughout the year, but it just doesn't seem to get the same effect for it. So it does frustrate us at the emergency department and lots of my colleagues between healthcare assistants, domestic staff, reception staff, clerical staff, everybody. We've discussed this year in, year out that we feel so upset, frustrated and morally injured every time we're just seeing this over and over again when no actual achievement and results. It's the same story. We have no beds to be able to put our patients into and we're having such a crisis in it in the emergency department year in, year out.
Would you understand though the frustration of the patients and their families who want to tell those stories, who want to have a voice in all of this? Because, you know, of Absolutely. course, they will argue that silence is not the answer. You know, that they would say that the reason they come to the media to tell those stories is because they want to raise the issue and have it be, you know, put in the face of those decision makers. Sarah, I really don't believe silence is the answer. And I don't feel that that's what I'm trying to say here. Absolutely. We want patients to tell their stories. We want to direct it to the senior decision makers that are making the decisions that are not giving us the resources that we need to help treat them. So patients are absolutely with us on the same page. Anytime that I'm dealing with patients that are frustrated, I encourage them to speak with their local politicians to highlight as much as they can about it. I even say about highlighting the positives that are going on in the emergency departments to the local media as well, even to help us in that way. So I'm not saying that silence is absolutely the answer. I'm saying maybe the formula in the way that maybe the media can handle it will be better. For example, the other night on the RT upfront, they had two senior ministers that were on and it was so frustrating to watch them argue over whose statistics are right. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. We know the statistics are showing that patients are on trolleys. The patient had to interrupt the senior politicians to say it's really disrespectful for the patients. The patients are with us. We are with the patients. Silence isn't the answer, but we need the senior decision makers to come and actually answer the questions. What has changed in one year in our emergency department to help our trolley crisis and the acute bed capacity? Just one year, we went through the exact same story this time last year. Tell me exactly one year, not five years of statistics, not 10 years of statistics. Tell me what one year has achieved to increase our acute bed capacity. Um, Lisa, just going back to that point you made about moral injury, and I think that the three of us here sitting around the table, I think we're all in journalism around the same length of time that you've been in emergency medicine. I, I don't think, I certainly hope for the three of us, that no one ever sets out to try and cause deliberate distress to people who are on the front line like yourself. I would imagine that we all presume that the tone of the coverage that we're doing is is about holding the most senior management, the, you know, the CEO of the HSE or the, the Minister for Health and the rest of the government to account. Can you just go into a bit more detail about just the, the damage that it has on you or how you feel like that it's, it's having a, a harmful impact on people like you directly? Well, for me, for example, I mean, it makes me feel like that. What am I doing? Why am I doing this day in, day out? Why am I going into work when there's such a crisis for the last 12 years? How is that going to actually contribute to people bringing them into the nursing profession, bringing them into the healthcare profession when they're seeing this year in, year out? Why would I want to work in that sort of an environment? When patients or when staff actually get in and are trained in the nursing profession and the medical profession, why do they want to stay here when they're constantly reminded of such an environment that we're working in, constantly reminded that doctors and nurses are going abroad. So that's what I'm talking about in relation to that. I would really like the senior decision makers actually held accountable or even just asked about what are the increases that you've done in the last one year. I can understand when they're saying that's no comment or there's nobody available, et cetera, but where's the pressure to keep them on actually and to actually address it with them day by day, day by day, there's still no representative that's there, still no representative and ask them the direct questions. The statistics that they say in relation to like the last five years and there's a huge recruitment drive, etc. Well, what has that got to do with and how does it marry down to the trolley crisis in the emergency department that patients are still on trolleys? How has that actually impacted on it? Because if it hasn't, then it's not really something that they should be saying that is actually 
benefiting the patients and getting them beds and on the wards, etc. So in turn then, do you feel like when the likes of Stephen Donnelly singles out some hospital management, like in Waterford, for example, where they have relatively less uh, hospital overcrowding, that that in some way is then passing the book to people like you because he's saying, if if Waterford can do it, why can't you do it in Castle Bar or elsewhere? And that, that, that sort of feels like he's targeting people like you as well. Yeah, and I'm nearly sure with Waterford, they've actually had an increase in their acute bed capacity in the last few years. So that's actually, I, I know that that hospital is uh, traditionally used as a kind of marker for all of us other hospitals. However, Letterkenny University Hospital sees the exact same or roughly the same amount of presentations to the emergency department as Tala University Hospital. The resources that are actually divided out between that are not that equal. Let me very be very clear in relation to this. Hospital management are trying their best, but they are only been able to work with the resources that they are given. When people blame hospital management, I am one of the managers of the emergency department as a consultant in emergency medicine. That is part of my role is to manage the emergency department. However, I really have no control on the amount of beds that are in-house. I have no control of the amount of presentations that are coming into the emergency department that need admission. We have an idea each time, each year, roughly that 25 to 35% of our patients each day will get admitted. So in my hospital, between 100, 130 a day will come to the hospital. About 25 to 35% of those patients are going to be admitted. This is something that we know from statistics. So we know the amount of beds that we need. This is increasing each year, the amount of patients that are presenting that need admission. So therefore, I'm trying to work as a manager in the emergency department, even though I'm a consultant at clinical, I still am a manager. I'm trying to work with... Um, at getting patients into the medical beds or the surgical beds, but when there's not the beds there for them to actually go into, the resources aren't there. And that's what it all comes down to. Hospital management are trying their best with the resources that they are given. It's an interesting point, particularly because I think when you hear the general discussion around it and when we talk about it, not in even in the media, but amongst friends and family as well, everybody always speaks about how the staff and the health service are excellent. But do you feel like then, from, from what you're telling us, it almost as if... You know, some staff, whether they be at senior level in the health service or in emergency departments, actually feel that no matter how you talk about it and you talk about the issues in the health service, that it is in a way an implied criticism of them and their work. And that must have an impact then. I mean, you mentioned doctors and nurses leaving to go abroad. We've heard obviously over the last number of weeks since the start of the year, just how many people are being attracted to Australia in particular. I know of a couple of people who are medical workers who are looking to go over to Perth. Um, So that is obviously having an impact there, whether or not people intend on having a criticism of doctors and nurses, it clearly is having an impact on whether or not they actually want to work in Ireland. Yeah, so one of my colleagues said, when I'm on call in the emergency department, one of my colleagues is the clinical nurse manager who is the most senior nurse that's on the floor with me. So the two of us are responsible for that emergency department. We have a clinical operations team, which one of my best friends who has a background of clinical nursing is on. So she's trying to make these decisions or a mission for patients. But when there is physically no beds, we don't have the discharges being able to be there because patients are quite unwell at the moment. We might have district beds that are closed. I feel that the management that people might perceive is different to actually the clinical management that is actually there. So we are the managers that are trying to run the hospital, you know, from our department day by day. There is a senior level of kind of non-clinical managers that are there as well. But again, they have the exact same resources that we have. It's the bed capacity that we need more beds for these patients to go into, which when you alluded to earlier on, I'm nearly sure that Waterford Hospital had an increase in their acute bed capacity in the last few years. Hence, that's the benchmark for it. Um, I know University Hospital Limerick, they were talking about that recently as well. Well, When you look in one year, how has that actually 
increased in one year, just this time last year to this time this year, how many beds has increased in the hospital, in your local hospital, to help cope with this trolley crisis that patients are still on trolleys in the emergency department, still get the acute care, but they should be physically up in a bed upstairs. If you were a young doctor and you were starting in, you know, your career in medicine in emergency departments now, would you be tempted to leave for Australia, given, you know, the conditions and what you see on a yearly basis through emergency departments? I get asked this so often. I'd say so. <laughs> I have the most wonderful job. In the yeah. world. I love it. I absolutely love emergency medicine. I love emergency medicine in Ireland. I came through the training scheme here. I think we have, there's lots of dynamics to be able to work as an emergency medicine doctor with the skills. Certainly the environment contributes to it, but if people want to go abroad in healthcare, you will go, you know, for different aspects of training, etc. I went abroad myself to the UK to get my fellowship in pre-hospital emergency medicine, but I came back. So it is part and parcel to actually travel and to gain that experience and bring that knowledge back. So I would never hold anybody back from wanting to go away, but I would absolutely say I love my job. If you talk to any emergency medicine staff, we love our job. We absolutely love what we do. The environment is definitely crushing us, but we absolutely love it. So I would absolutely encourage people to stay and to enjoy it. It is an absolutely wonderful specialty if we could just fix what is going on. And again, it's not an emergency medicine crisis. It's not an emergency department crisis. It is a system that needs opportunities to be able to increase the acute bed capacity, which is having a huge impact on the emergency department. I often say that if we didn't have the amount of trolleys that we have in the emergency department, emergency medicine would run very well. We are very productive. If we see between 100 and 140 patients a day, we're actually discharging quite a few of those patients. We're attending to their acute medical needs. Whether they're urgent, non-urgent care or emergency care, we've shot ourselves in the foot by actually performing very, very well and over capacity. So we've actually done quite well, but it is the most rewarding and loving job. I really enjoy it. Lisa, can I just go back to asking you a bit about that patient experience and how things are managed? You know, you talk about like trying to sort of juggle everything and use the resources that you have um, in front of you to, to give people the best possible care. Do you think there needs to be a conversation around maybe how triage works, how things are managed, even around maybe the communications in terms of people coming to the department? Because you will often hear people say, you know, people present to the department that don't really need to be there at all, that actually, you know, they could have held on, that, you know, the definition sometimes of emergency care is, is kind of loosely defined to you then what falls under that bracket of emergency for our listeners so that people can understand from your perspective what is classified as an emergency I think from as an emergency medicine consultant I would never ever say to somebody that's not an emergency I would absolutely try and introduce in my conversation about emergency I always say hi I'm Lisa I'm one of the emergency medicine doctors what's your emergency today so then patients may say oh well it's not an emergency but I couldn't get access to x y and z now I would never berate anybody for that because they've come to us in a time of need. So if it was something that maybe could have been dealt with as a minor injury clinic, I would signpost them to that just to passively inform them about that being available to them. But I would always treat them, you know, when they've come into us. Um, and when you say about the resources that are actually there, so patients will come to the emergency department with non-emergency, non-urgent needs. They will always be assessed and they will always be triaged. And um, that is a very important thing because it has to be that way. We may very well have somebody that's coming with a little bit of tummy pain, but actually they're having a heart attack. Women will present with certain symptoms that are different to the central crushing chest pain radiating down to the left arm. So we have a triage system that will be able to define 
who gets to be seen first based on their priority and severity. Um, and that has to be the way that it is. So if somebody does have a fractured toe or stub their toe, they're coming in and, you know, they feel that that's an emergency because they might drive for a living, etc. They might not be able to work for the next six weeks versus somebody having a heart attack. We need to have that triage system that's there. So I don't feel the triage system needs to be actually looked at instead. You hit the nail on the head about the passive information you know, the public knowing what's actually available out there. But I live in Mayo in the west of Ireland. There is one minor injuries unit over in Roscommon for the west of Ireland. So I don't really have the luxury to tell somebody from Belmullet or from out there, Ockleam or somebody in Sligo, for example, oh yeah, just run on down there to Roscommon because that's like a two hour journey down and maybe a two hour journey back up. So it's, you know, those sorts of resources may be very well there. Finally, Lisa, we're nearly out of time and I know you need to get back to the department, but I just want to ask you because, you know, we hear so much about we haven't reached the peak yet, that, you know, respiratory infections are going to peak in the next week or two. You know, how do you feel about all of that? How do you feel now going into the next two weeks and what do you expect to come? So from the last week or so and me being on call, I've actually felt maybe myself anecdotally that it actually has peaked instead. Um, I mean, when you tell me that that's going to happen, of course, it's going to give me a little bit more of an anxiety, a little bit more of a kind of fear of having to go in, you know, what's going to happen. But, you know, really at the end of the day, as emergency medicine staff, we will go in and we will do exactly what we need to do every single day. We will try our best. We will reassure the patients and we will really try, you know, to give that good standard of care that we know that we're capable with, with the resources that we have. There you have it, Dr. Lisa Cunningham, uh, consultant in emergency medicine at Mayo University Hospital. Interesting perspective there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it is interesting to hear from Lisa, particularly about that point you made about communications and people understanding what warrants an emergency before you mm. go to an emergency department as well. And, um, you know, she was keen to make the point that our understanding of how to deal with, say, minor injuries or things like nosebleeds and sprains and things that she sort of feels there definitely needs to be more done in terms of educating people around those things. Um, you know, look, I think... It's, I, I totally acknowledge that, you know, if you're working in an emergency department and you're reading all these headlines about the crisis in health, that it must be just so incredibly demoralising. Mm. But, you know, Lisa herself acknowledges that not talking about it also isn't the answer, Gavin, is it? Yeah, uh, my, my takeaway point actually to all of that, and I thought it was a, a point that was really worth dwelling on, was just that idea that when we, we hear about hospital management, that we think there are mm. people that yeah. aren't on the floor. You think about administrators, yes, don't you? but actually the point that she made quite well is that, no, the management are people like her on the floor. So when you talk about hospital management, we have this idea that they're detached from the people that are doing the services. They're not. They're the ones on the floor. So they're not as completely detached from the realities of it as sometimes we might allow it to be portrayed. Yeah. So I think this is obviously a story which is going to be very much in the political spotlight. It's very much going to be in the spotlight here on this show, I think, uh, for the next number of weeks. So we'll have mm -hmm. to see how it, how it does materialise. Now, one issue that didn't go away over the Christmas and New Year's period, uh, suspected arson attacks on buildings, which it's important to give the distinction. There's a couple of different types of buildings and suspected attacks which have taken place. A, there are suspected attacks uh, on buildings which have been set aside to accommodate asylum seekers. B, ones which were rumoured to be earmarked uh, to accommodate asylum seekers, but were actually meant to accommodate homeless families. And C, other buildings which were purportedly rumoured to be used for asylum seekers, mm. but mm. in fact were just dilapidated and not even being considered for use for anything. So far, no arrests whatsoever in any of these investigations so far. No sign of any slowdown in these attacks effectively mm. taking place. This is something which I suppose is a very, very worrying development in a political sense. 
Absolutely. And I would say as well, you know, in, in the height of an accommodation crisis, to see any accommodation, no matter who it's earmarked for, being being damaged like this is a huge crisis. Richard, do you think a lot of this comes down to communication? You know, we talk about this idea of communication across the board. Is it that, you know, communication and misinformation overlapping, lack of communication? What do you to what do you sort of attribute some of the the situation we're seeing unfolding in these communities around the country? It's hard to say. And I think it's always it can always be a bit of a pitfall or a bit of a trap to just say communication and fix this. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. especially when a lot of the investigations so far are focusing on uh, agitation online and the ideation behind some of these attacks, some far right um, agitators have pointed to some of these buildings prior to them being set on fire mm. and have they have been under the spotlight. You look at particularly at the situation in Rings End, the shipwrecked pub, uh, which was burned down. That was the site of protest. Uh, For before. weeks. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Before it was actually uh, suspected to have been torched in, in an arson attack. This is a very dangerous path we are now going down in this country. It obviously follows on uh, from a level of unsafety that people who are coming to this country report feeling they have, they've reported and other people of colour in this country are reporting a rise in racism. They are reporting that they are seeing more of this in their day-to-day lives. And obviously it also follows on from what we saw in Dublin um, back in November as well. So it is a worrying path we are going down particular when you don't see any arrests at this point in time. Mm. You don't know when the end of it is. Is there going to be an end of it? And I don't know if communication is is the factor here. I think there is probably a feeling among some people politically that the only way you actually stomp it out is if you take on the people who are actually agitating and are pointing people towards these things. Yeah, the, the government's been a little bit late to the party about this whole information piece, whether you believe that information would actually, uh, you know, deter or sort of diffuse a lot of the the angst that there might be in a lot of communities. But they're, they're really, really late to the party. I mean, I remember observing in a dull debate before Christmas that um, some rural independent TDs were voicing concerns around immigration and how it was being handled and also the processing of asylum seekers. And they were asking questions about, you know, how are they vetted? How do we ensure that we're not allowing someone who's coming to the country in bad faith? All of which, to which there are answers available at the government's fingertips, but that they just weren't giving. And Mm. it's kind of interesting that they're now belatedly coming to the party and saying, well, actually, you know, just because somebody tears up a passport doesn't mean we don't know who they are because we do facial profiling, we take fingerprints, we can check them against international databases. So it's still possible to vouch for that person's identity. But they just weren't saying stuff like that until now. And it sort of seems then that when they make the point belatedly, it either looks like they're scrambling to recover a bit of lost faith or it looks like they're yeah. hardening their rhetoric to deal with rising public concern. You know, That is a point then where communication, there has been a shift. Because I did notice that from Leo Varadkar over, I think it was towards the back end of December into the start of January where he started saying, well, there's a lot of myths happening here mm. and they're mm-hmm. being propagated by other politicians. They're being propagated in the media. But here's the actual facts in terms of, well, here's the vetting process. Here's what happens here's how we know that these people are, you know, legitimate and coming where they're saying they're coming from. That is a shift that did take place Mm. in terms Mm -hmm. of communication. Um, As you say, Gavin, is this really the tactic that should have been taking place all the way through? Maybe it would have put off some of this. But a lot of this is just coming from a place of, you know, far-right racism, effectively. Well, it is, but then I, you would also argue as well that when you see with a lot of these protests, and we haven't just seen it over Christmas in the last you know, year or two, you would see people who would argue that these small communities don't have enough resources in the first place and that there's almost a fear within communities that, oh, we barely have enough you know, like capacity in terms of local GPs or local mm. services and things like that, that people will always come out and argue that they feel like their small community is under enough pressure and that an increase in population, you know, isn't. Now, listen, like whether or not that's, you know, 
whether or not that's the real motivating factor, you know, is not for me to decide. But I'm saying that there are definitely people yep. who will say that they feel like you are increasing the population of very small towns by a huge number often, you know, when you, mm. you move in dozens and dozens of people into a small community that already probably has limited resources as it is. I thought it was very telling briefly uh, that when the uh, protest in Ballon Row yeah. was dispersed on, on Monday because it was announced to the locals there that it would no longer be housing single men but rather women and children coming as families um, that those who had ostensibly voiced concerns about the provision of public services then packed up and left because they were satisfied for the facility to be used for women and children but had had apparently some concern about the services beforehand. If you're bringing 12 hotel rooms worth of 50 people into a community, the service load is is broadly similar irrespective of their ages or their, their gender or demographics. So I I thought that was an interesting... Like, well, then that's sexism. An, an interesting, racism, well, an interesting but... trigger that the once they were told that different people were coming. Mm. The same burden of services is there, but that the... Possibly the even more because you have away. other you know, having children in a, in a yeah, community becomes, there's, yeah. there's a specialised mm. level of care which is required mm. there. Mm. But it was interesting, I think it was in the Irish Times I read this morning, I think it was, it might have been in Cathy Sheridan's piece on this, about the fact that the whole talking point around it is now revolving entirely around single male migrants. That's the pro- that's the issue for a lot of these protests. Mm-hmm. That's why they're protesting. I think she quoted one protester in Ballinrobe who said, well, there are actually plenty of room in Ballinrobe. There's loads of space. We know there's rooms there, but it's the men is the problem. So it is very interesting and it's actually a column worth reading just from the point of view that the talking point around unvetted military aged men has become very much the mainstream talking mm. point mm. and it has become the driving factor as to whether or not there's protests in it. I'll actually, I've completely slipped my mind up until now. When we were covering a story in Dublin yesterday, I was speaking to someone who works in the city and works to make it a better place effectively, right? Uh, and they were working on a building which they were doing up uh, effectively to help people who are in drug addiction. And a person pulled up, two, I think it was two people he actually said, um, pulled up in the vehicle and asked, what's going on with this building here? And he's like, oh, we're doing it up for drug addiction. He's like, good, are you sure there's no refugees going in there? Because it would be an awful shame for all of your good work to go up in flames. <clears throat> now that's what's happening that in terms of the discussion what? which does happen. Ooh. Now, if that is a very, if that is, is you know, that, that, that put the frighteners up this person who is, again, trying to help their city I just, uh, in the best way possible. Like, I can't even believe that somebody would even openly say something like that. I mean, you know, whatever about them thinking it, but I mean, to actually openly say it's a shame to see your work up in flames, that's a threat. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I it's mean, it's a threat. It does seem like a code of threat, but also that they, they're they having a ranking between people with drug addiction services. Who's more deserving. Uh, yeah. And, and people who are coming to the country because they might be fleeing some kind of persecution where they're originally from. Like, for there to be a hierarchy there, that's very unsettling. But is there a conversation to be had around, you know, adequate integration? You know what I mean? Because I I think there definitely has been really positive stories of people integrating into communities up and down the country and Actually, I suppose it kind of goes back to the media and how we handle things as well. You know, do we, we don't often probably see or hear the stories of positive no. integration, actually. And it might mm-hmm. be worth actually looking into it ourselves. I'm going to put that in the diary for this year where we maybe look around and see where integration has been successful and where yeah. it actually has really worked. And I'm thinking, you know, even back to when I was in school and we had people coming from Kosovo and they were in our classroom. And, you know, I'm thinking of someone I went to school with who I know is working as a nurse now who came from Kosovo when I would have been in school back in um, the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, that person since now working on the front line in the health service and has had a really, you know, successful integration and lives a really great life in Ireland now. That, you know, do we not talk enough as media about how valuable the contribution people can make to our society? Possibly is. I mean, you do get into that thing about there will be some criticism of that because it becomes the debate around the good migrant versus the bad migrant or whatever. But look, 
I think that there's a, there's a lot of success stories which you could point to, as you say, mm-hmm. Zara. I think there's a lot of success stories in the west of Ireland, in particular, and schools, which had many of them were in danger of either losing a teacher or being in danger of sh- shutting altogether, mm. who influx of people particularly Ukrainians in some places in the west of Ireland, has actually given new life Mm. to some schools in particular. But this is very much on the mainstream political agenda now. I don't know if the government has their hands on it or has figured out exactly how to handle it. The Ballon Robe situation was dissuaded. The protest there uh, has been called off as a result of it being families rather than single men, migrants coming in there. So I guess we're going to have to wait and see how it all shakes out. But in terms of obviously another story internationally, um, a big development this week actually in the Gaza story, mm-hmm. which I actually think is going to be very interesting. And actually a lot of people were in touch with me about because they wanted to know how we're going to cover this. Yeah. So mm. the International Court of Justice in The Hague will Thursday and Friday hear arguments uh, put forward by the state of South Africa against Israel, accusing Israel of committing and having an intention of genocide in Gaza. And this is a fascinating development because Israel is going to represent itself effectively in courts. You're going to have Thursday, South Africa is going to lay out its case for about three hours. Israel is going to lay out its case on Friday. Now, it's going to be years until there's a full-term ruling on this. Nothing moves quick in terms of international justice and long-term. It's to hear the sides, though. It's to hear both sides. No, but it's not just that. Because the court can issue an interim measure. Both South Africa and Israel are signatories to the convention around this. It was set up after the Holocaust. So Israel, in participating and putting its case out, could actually... It's very hard for Israel to argue against the court if the court says Israel must stop the Mm. conflict in Gaza right now because there's a risk of genocide. It's very hard for Israel to make a case internationally that, well, we don't want to do that. Seems as it's participated in and says, well, look, we're going to argue our case in that. So it's very, very interesting. There is actually an Irish involvement as well. Uh, uh, Lawyer Blinani Grawley is uh, advising South Africa's team. So there's big legal teams on both sides. Uh, who will put their case forward. She's very interesting. She worked as a legal advisor previously on the Bloody Sunday inquiry in, nor- in the north, um, also represented many of the families of the Bloody Sunday victims, human rights lawyer, all that sort of stuff. But very, very interesting. And it is something South Africa has picked it up because dating back to the time of Mandela, yeah. they've had a very close tie with the Palestinian movement. And they would see, obviously, the, the, the word apartheid being used mm-hmm. as often as it is mm. in terms of Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. They see this as something which is core to their meaning. Now, there's been a lot of criticism and there's been a lot of political argument here, Gavin, yeah. about whether or not Ireland should join that. And I think that's probably the biggest target on the back of the government in terms of Gaza at the moment. I think so, because actually the, the day that we recorded this, Eamon Ryan was asked at length about the case that South Africa was bringing. And he said that he had read the, the written submissions that South Africa had made to the court. And he said that he found a lot of them irrefutable, mm. um, mm. which then does kind of beg a question. Well, if that's the, the belief of senior figures within the Irish government, why was there such resistance before Christmas at the idea of Ireland making a referral to these courts or Ireland trying to compound previous cases? And when Eamon Ryan says that cases like this are irrefutable, it does kind of go back then to, well, see, the original defence that the government was putting for not filing a new case or attaching itself to a new case, which would be, this is already a matter under live investigation. We don't want to look like we're pressuring the court to fall down one way or another. Mm. Well, if the court is now looking into it and you've basically said out loud you believe the case is irrefutable, then doesn't your previous defence go out the window? And I would imagine, to be honest, if the doll weren't on holidays this week, we'd be hearing that point put back to the government in pretty short order. I'd say you'd probably hear it a lot even when the doll does come back. Mm-hmm. The fact that Ireland did not participate in this or did not join South Africa and bring this case is going to be something which opposition politicians who have given their fair share of credit to the government in terms of statements on mm-hmm. Gaza 
I think this is probably the target on the back for the government in this. Zara, I saw you share uh, Motaz, a journalist we've yeah. talked about a lot. I yeah. saw how you show, 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 share some of his um, content again there. Um, the question of journalists in Gaza very starkly brought into focus. Now one in ten journalists in Gaza have been killed since the conflict began. That would, I would imagine, make it the most dangerous job anywhere in the world, doesn't matter what your profession or trade is, being a journalist in Gaza. It's very, very hard as a journalist here to sort of sit and look at all this happening and sort of almost sort of when you sit back and think a little bit as to why there isn't as much outrage here Mm. around that, particularly from journalists here, I don't think you see as much of an outpouring of well, this is a scandal about that issue as you would have if it was in anywhere else in the world. Yeah, and I know we talked about Motaz before Christmas and I think we actually, I think in the Christmas special you had said really he was the most influential journalist in the world right now. I think he probably is. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, every day that we log on and we watch this footage and these pictures that are coming from, you know, and these are raw, unedited images that we are seeing coming from Gaza. Every day I find myself worrying that Motaz won't post something and Mm. that his posts will end. And I think that that is the reality of what those journalists are confronted with every single day. And, you know, we look at, there's another journalist, I think, working for Al Jazeera who had lost family. Wael Dadu. So Wael Dadu is known as um, the voice of Gaza and he's also known as the mountain because he's so stoic. He's lost his wife, uh, his daughter, uh, his son, his grandson. And then recently he lost his eldest son, who is also another journalist for Al Jazeera. Um, and he every single time continues to work has gone yeah. back to work the very he's next day he's gone back to work and just kept telling the stories I mean that is a commitment and a dedication like that is you know he has paid the highest price and you know you cannot but be frightened if I'm honest actually that you know I, I have to say I do find myself frightened for the likes of Motaz every day we log on that they won't post again tomorrow but that is the reality that they are dealing with every single day Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Richard, an entire street has closed in Dublin this week. What exactly is going on? Yeah, Harbour Court. Um, apparently, it's been a long-term issue. I think, I, I, I think I'd walked down it before. So basically, Harbour Court, and it was like t- to tell you the truth. When I actually said to our camera operator Conan yesterday, it's like we have to go down to that lane they're shutting down off Abbey Street because it's so dangerous and it's like dilapidated and antisocial behaviour. He went to the wrong lane. Well, no, I actually went to the wrong lane as well. Um, so then we went to the right lane, which was Harbour Court. So effectively, it's a little lane. It goes from Abbey Street beside Wynn's Hotel, yeah. right? It goes out into Eden Quay. So it goes straight through from Abbey Street into the Quays. And there's a little T bit, which goes out to Marlborough Street as well, just okay. outside oh, I know the Abbey Theatre. Yeah, How wide is it? It's pretty wide. Okay, so like it's, <laughs> but, no, but, but, but like it's, it's not like a really, like a really, yeah, really narrow urban tape. alley. Like no, it's, it's big. Proper, like it's it's big. A you can drive two cars up and down it like. Oh, I know it. Yeah, yeah. I, know it. I know it. So um, they're closing it because it has been... That's a, a handy one for getting around the keys, actually. Not anymore. Like, because, well, not anymore, obviously, but... Did you drive up it, did you? Do? 
I think I've driven down that. I never, I never, I actually didn't anyway. But anyway, so a lot of people actually didn't know this lane existed. Um, But is it by the Abbey Theatre there? It is, yeah. So can you get into the Abbey Theatre now that it's closed, or what's the? Oh yeah, well the street from Abbey Street. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Okay, fair enough. Right, go on. Um, But yeah, no. So look, they're shutting it down because it's very dangerous. Apparently, there's been a long-term issue uh, dating back 14, 15 years, according to some councillors, with antisocial behaviour. Uh, dumping is a huge one there. Like, I mean, there's a, 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 there, there were mounds of rubbish there when we turned up to report on it. Open intravenous drug use is a huge one as well. And obviously, because we've seen a spike in overdoses in recent months in Dublin, the fact is that that's a very quiet and secluded lane. People could overdose there and they wouldn't be found and they, they could potentially die. So there's a risk factor there as well. Okay. But also potentials for mugging. It's a very dark alley, uh, effectively, as well. So that's been, it's going to be shut down, which I didn't know... You could really do. I didn't think that that was a city council power, that they could just decide that some areas were just so undesirable that they could effectively just shut them off from use. Like, I kind of find that wild. But also, isn't it really dispiriting that if there is rampant antisocial behaviour and drug use and people using it as an open toilet and because it's dark and secluded, that the response is not to deal with the underlying cause. Yes. It's just yeah. to treat the symptom yeah. by shutting the street, thereby was, dispersing uh, all those problems elsewhere, yeah. which doesn't seem to help. But I was just going to say that, like, I mean, the reason that, that people are using it as an open toilet is because they don't have access to it because they're probably homeless and they're probably relying on... And, you know, the fact that it's quiet and secluded, perhaps people who might be rough sleeping there probably feel safe there because it's maybe not in the main thoroughfare. Like you could see why people would potentially want to use it if you're in a vulnerable situation mm. and maybe it's a bit quieter, you know, that there's an argument there for that. But obviously they feel it's not safe at this point. No, and they say... What was the catalyst though that set this off? So, well, they had a debate around it in uh, Dublin City Council back last July, I think it was, and they, they basically got the wheels in motion on it. They, put, they took in public submissions. I think it was 26 public submissions, um, mostly from businesses which back onto the... Laneway, they were all for closing it, only four submissions for keeping it open, right? So effectively, councillors two nights ago voted, what's the best thing we can do? We can just close it and hope at some point in the future we can open it up again. Apparently it's happened before. There's a, there's a couple of instances of, of really tiny little byways, which are previous med- medieval streets in Dublin, which have been mm-hmm. shut down forever. There's one in Delir Street, I think it was, and it has an old sort of medieval market. You can sort of look into it. It's beside okay. Chaplin's Pub, I think it is. But anyway, um, it what has happened before. the street? Do you build a brick wall? Or They're like... going to put gates on it, effectively. Oh, right. So it's going to be gated off. Um, they hope that they will in some point, at some point in the future, be able to open it again. There is a level of people who are like, as you say, why is the solution to shut it down? We have loads of little laneways like that, particularly in the north inner city, which have a load of history to mm-hmm. them. Obviously, it's a medieval city. There's loads of them everywhere. Exactly, right? yeah. but there should yeah. be almost a way of rejuvenating them. You could make yeah. them pedestrianised. You could put shop fronts facing out into them rather than being in the back of shops. Loads of different things, but could become a marketplace. You could have stalls. You know, because yeah. actually, it, it, it it's well constructed. There used to be the Arco amusements were out there. So it was a 1950s amusement hall. And some of the like ghost ghost signs, what they used to be called. Yeah, you know, yeah. The old signs are based still on visible there. There. So, like, it used to be a place where people walked through. So no more. It's going to fade off the face of the earth until Dublin City Council. And it is a problem we do have with old things in Dublin City that we just let them fall into disrepair. The Ivy Markets, the roof is falling oh, through on that. So we won't get into that. Know. That's that's going to drive me up the walls. But it, it is a, a consistent problem in Dublin. We don't know how to protect our oldest stuff. Mm. A humble smartphone. And we were just discussing whether or not people call them smartphones they're, they're, they're anymore. They're just the phones. phones now. Yeah. <laughs> phones are good. They well, tell me. Yeah, actually, the distinction between phone and smartphone is quite germane to this story because mm. there was a workplace. Um, I don't think it's named in the particular study that was done, but there was a workplace that had always had a ban on personal devices. And the thinking was 
that it was an anti-productive thing. That if you brought them onto the shop floor or you brought them into the office and you had your own phone sitting alongside all your work devices, yeah. it made you less productive. And their thinking was, well, actually, if you just are able to park everything in your work life, you don't bring all these other stresses in, you can devote yourself to your job and everything is fine afterwards. And only of late have they decided to relax that policy, whereas part of an academic study, they said, OK, having had a personal phone free environment, you can now bring your smartphone in and you can have your personal emailing, your social networking, your Instagram, your ex, your Facebook, whatever else you have. And it turns out that people are actually much less stressed now. And that's counterintuitive to the people who are organizing this whole policy because they thought if you don't have your work email or your personal emails or your Instagram going, whatever, that you're devoted to your job, that it makes you less stressed. What they've actually found now is that basically smartphones have become so saturated in society that you almost feel like you're missing a limb <laughs> if you don't have your personal phone there and that it's actually less stressful to have you there with yeah. all of your alerts and everything else going off. They've basically concluded that actually being detached from the rest of the world by not having all those push alerts and everything else going on is more stressful I would totally than the agree idea. with that. I was going to ask you, Zara, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I would feel, totally agree with that. If you forgot your phone and you went to work, I think you'd almost spend more time distracted at the fact that you didn't have your phone. Well, I couldn't do my job with your phone. if I didn't have no, my but like phone. If you did, say you didn't work in journalism or whatever, mm. if you went to so anywhere, Right, if you went to another job, right, right, and you didn't have, you forgot your phone, you left it at home, you would 100% spend more time worrying about what you're missing on your phone oh, or any right. contact mm. you would have, as opposed to the time you would if you just had your phone with you. Well, 100%, like I'm looking at your laptop here on the table, like I don't even use a laptop, I just use my phone. I have an iPad, I have like all the other devices, I don't use them, they're in a bag at home, and you're looking at me going, this is none of this. <laughs> I see you're watching none of this. I know, like the IT department are like, well, take that laptop back, Sarah. <laughs> uh, I don't, I literally never open that. I turn that. Mm. I actually use that laptop so infrequently that every time I turn it on it needs to update itself because it has been used in like six months or something. But um, I am so heavily reliant on the phone. Like I, I, you know, as you both know, my phone smashed off the ground before Christmas and I was like, I literally thought I had like really? lost a limb. It was so pathetic. Like I just couldn't function. And then That's why there were so many a, beach walks. You had nothing else going nothing on. Else going on. You know, I got, thankfully I got a new phone for Christmas as a present. Thank you very much. Um, but I did like, the, and then I dropped it a second time. So the screen <gasps> became completely invisible. Oh. And I, I literally found found it really stressful to not be able to kind of communicate through this you mm. know like you're a bit of a phone addict as well now oh, but yeah, absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I think be. it's good to hear a well-rounded discussion on phones for a change you know what I mean that it's positive because mm. there's so many negative things associated with the technologies yeah. around smartphones particularly if you're like trying to get to sleep using them at night time that's, yeah. that's, that's probably the worst thing I'd find about phones if you look at the phone before bed. But then you can use like the cam app to read you a bedtime story. So no, it like actually helps you to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> look, there's ups and downs to these cellular right. devices. Anyway, science has now concluded that phones are great. There you go. Let's all embrace it. Tell your boss. Tell your boss. <laughs> um, we were going to talk about the Golden Groves. But we were running out of time. I wanted to mention Barry yeah. Keoghan, who's mentioned by GQ, as claimed as one of ours. One of ours by GQ UK. Did you think there was a, oh, a UK I, claim? I, I didn't think that was a territorial thing. I think that they meant he's one of our best actors. I think he meant like humankind or like the arts world. It's very grand I don't of think GQ it was, magazine. I don't think it was British GQ it. saying yeah. that he's actually a Brit and that he secretly talks with an Essex accent or something like that. I think we're we were a little little quick to rush to judgment on that one. I think I thought he looked absolutely fantastic the other night. I loved the suit. I thought the earrings, everything, the whole look. I just thought, oh my god, Barry Hogan, you look absolutely divine. Good for you. Have you seen Saltburn yet? No, I'm dying to see it. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it. It's, well, we I, watch no. it and talk about it next week. 
Uh, that's okay. a bit of a commitment to no. actually say they Group have to watch Sorry, I no. listened to the Britney Spears audiobook for this podcast. If you can't watch Thornford, come on. We'll think about we can, it. We, we can find it. two hours over the course of a week to watch it. We probably should. Watch it in stages. I mean, that's how you watch films. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to be a bit grim, like a bit dark, is it? Any people, like, look, we, okay, we're going to owe it to our, our viewers. We'll watch it just for the zeitgeist. Everyone okay. else watch it as well if you're listening and we can all talk about Film it. Club. They can Film send Club. Their thoughts. Yeah, uh, right. It has brought Sophie Alice Baxter back once again, which is great. Which She's had many, many lives in her pop career and it's yeah. great to have one more. Her post-kitchen disco <laughs> lockdown life. Okay, homework yeah. is to watch Sopper and I'm annoyed that I brought that up now towards the end <laughs> after running out of time. That's all we do have time for though this week on the group chat. Zara, are you happy to be back? I'm so thrilled to be back actually. I'm totally delighted. I've missed you both terribly. No, it's, it's nice. I like the podcast. I feel like it's just a nice point in the week to talk about what's happening in the world are you happy yep Thanks yeah, for you're, <laughs> less, you're less lofty about it. Thanks for saying that Just you missed damn. us and then immediately backtracking on no, the plane. No, I did miss it. Nice. Well, we, well, we were all still talking to each other all over Christmas. So we didn't True. get a chance we to miss you we that were. much. But there yeah. was no escape from the group chat. No, we'll be back never. next week. Same time, same channel. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye. Bye